On this episode of the Vitalist Spark Podcast, we're going to be talking about housing. It's a huge issue that the state is facing overall. I think there's not just through the pandemic, but prior to housing has been on a climb in price and rental prices continue to increase. And, and we're seeing a lot more people struggle with housing when it's getting tighter and it's getting more difficult for everyone to squeeze more out of their dollar. And so that's why we're talking about this today. It's something that Vitalist has been involved in from a programmatic aspect for the past few years, and we've been really delving into it. We're going to be talking about housing and a newly released publication, Spark Brief, called Promising Housing Practices in Arizona, where there was a lot of research done into what organizations are doing across the state to mitigate the housing issue. Our guests are Suzanne Feaster, President and CEO of Vitalist Health Foundation, Gabriel Jaramillo, Director of Healthy Communities of Vitalist Health Foundation, and Darlene Newsom, former CEO of UMOM New Day Centers, and she also serves as a housing consultant for Vitalist Health Foundation. Without further ado, let's begin, and why don't we start with you telling us a little bit about yourselves and how you all got involved in the housing space. Who wants to kick it off? Again, Darlene Newsom. I'm former CEO at UMOM New Day Center and currently a consultant with Vitalist on housing, particularly working on the project of attainable housing for school teachers and support staff. But I have been involved in nonprofit work for 44 years. I've worked in Tucson. I've worked in rural areas of the state. And my last 19 years was with UMOM New Day Center, where we had the largest shelter for families, full-service shelter for single women and also a community development agency. We developed affordable housing, mostly using LIHTC. And to date, we've opened nine different complexes and almost 900 units of affordable housing. Darlene, for those listeners who may not know why LIHTC stands for, what's LIHTC? Low-income tax credit housing. Thank you. Gabe, why don't we go with you next? Well, hi, everybody. Gabriel Jaramillo, Director of Health Communities here at the Vitalist Health Foundation. I've been involved in housing for a while, not only through my upbringing, but I developed a passion through it in my professional career, which started in, in commercial banking and then led me to a career in nonprofit housing with Habitat for Humanity, where I spent eight years as a member of Habitat, helping build affordable housing specifically for ownership and then housing preservation through their home repair program. And that led to advocacy work. And then I've had the pleasure of working here at Vitalist for going on two years now, overseeing our programmatic work in housing, transportation, and a few other programmatic aspects, and having a lot of fun doing it. And I'm Suzanne Feaster. I've been the president and CEO of Vitalist for 10 years. And before that, I was about nine years on the board of what was at the time St. Luke's Health Initiatives. And we really had started talking about how housing is health. And looking at 2017, when we built the Healthy Communities Wheel, we talked about the integration of health and access to affordable health insurance, as well as access to affordable, healthy foods, transportation, and all of that integration. And really nationally, more and more people understand that you can't just provide housing. It really, for vulnerable people, it's housing and supportive services. And that really is the key. And we've seen cost reductions because people are getting better care. So it's not waiting until acute care. 
So it becomes very clear that workforce housing and housing that is attainable for all Arizonans is really critical to health and well-being. Great. Thank you. We know that there's about 150,000 housing units that that's the shortage that state has are right around there. So we just released this publication, Promising Housing Practices in Arizona. Let's dig a little deeper into why housing is so important to Vitalist, why Vitalist has really put its stake in the ground the last three years or so into housing and developed this series of publications about housing. And like Suzanne was saying is housing is important to Vitalist because it is an element of a healthy community. It is intertwined with every aspect of the elements of a healthy community. And more specifically, it's integral to the health of a community and an individual. Without housing, you don't have a place to live. You don't have a place to store food. You don't have a place for children to do their homework. You don't have a place to feel safe, secure, sanitary. All interacts within housing. More specifically, when we talk about the health of an individual, we can, like Suzanne had mentioned, as far as the services go, without an address, it's hard to get services. Without a physical address, it's hard to get your ID to be able to apply for different services, whether it be health services, social services, to be able to establish a home, to make sure you could register your children for school, you need that address. These are all elements that stable housing provides. Let's pitch it over to Darlene. Darlene, you spent, you said, 44 years in this. I was fortunate enough to see some of that work when I worked at UMOM. I saw it from a different viewpoint than the rest of the population might have seen it from. So what's your viewpoint on how housing can transform a family's or an individual's life? Well, I think it's everything for a family, for stability, and especially for the children. It really impacts the way they behave and their academics in school. And that's one of the leading things that has been tied to research is a child's progress and success in school is tied to stable living environment. And, and there's so many other things that intersect with that. When we talked about housing and health, children have asthma 60% more than the other children. And so we know that there's certain medical conditions that homeless children And a lot of that has to do with lack of medical care when they get a cold, when they get bronchitis. Some of the environments that they have to live in really illnesses such as asthma. So we know that one of the leading reasons of homelessness for families was the lack of affordable housing. It was back 20 years and it's the same today. But I think it's much more difficult today because the housing stock is low. It's low for a lot of reasons. Our populations have gone up. There's more short-term rentals. There's a lot of investors who have purchased a lot of our affordable housing units and have turned them into luxury units or have raised the rental on many of these units where families and seniors are squeezed out of their housing. So there is a great intersect there. And I think that's one of the reasons why I'm took on housing and that last level of the continuum of care is that there was such a strong need for that affordable, safe place for a family or an individual to be able to move into. I think the other point that is really good to make, our Medicaid program access did an analysis. They had been 
working with 3,000 of their members who were seriously mentally ill, and they were working in collaboration with the Arizona Department of Housing because Department of Housing can provide rent where the access can provide wraparound services. And within a year, the access was able to show a $5,500 reduction in average per member per month costs for those 3,000 individuals for a total savings of $82.5 million. And that savings came because these patients were not having to be taken care of in acute care in the emergency room of hospitals. Instead, they had a higher quality of life. So you think about it with these wraparound services, it saved money and improved the quality of life of these individuals. So it really is quite an investment in savings and in wellness if we combine housing with supportive services for our more fragile people in the state. Suzanne, you're part of MAG's Regional Collaboration on Homelessness, along with 15 or 20 other collaboratives and groups and committees and other thought leader think tanks. But let's talk about MAG. When you're at the Regional Collaboration on Homelessness, what are you hearing from city staff about the face of homelessness? How has it changed since housing prices became unattainable in Arizona? Well, I think really what led us to the genesis of this report was Darlene and Gabe and I have been working on a lot of different community settings, and we saw real best practices or what we would call promising practices. Some of them aren't ripe yet, but are moving in that direction. And we realized that people were talking about these kind of anecdotally, but there was never a single place you could go to get this information. And if we wanted to share best practices, we needed to get it in a place where people could see them all, get a sense of how they did it, what was the draft ordinance. And the great news is there's innovation going on all over the state. So as we were moving kind of upstream from homelessness to looking at attainable housing, and Vitalist has a report on housing on school properties, and that led us to where else can you have housing? So we started looking at how some of these cities and towns throughout Arizona and developers have been creative in taking care of and providing attainable workforce housing. So that really led us as a genesis to the development of this report. And I think it will be a report that will change because my guess is once we get this out here, people will say, well, what about my project? And you missed mine. And so we'll continue to update on our website some of these alternative practices and keep that as a way people can get engaged. Thank you, Suzanne. And like Suzanne mentioned, all of this information is at vitalisthealth.org slash housing. So there you can find the report. You can find news stories about housing, other promising practices that may not be included in that report are also featured in there. It's a great resource for the community and others to find out about what promising practices are happening. I know I myself, as I read this report, I started Googling all of these promising practices and Now I keep looking at this foundation that I have in my backyard with four erect walls and no roof. And I keep thinking that spot would probably fit a boxable really well. So hopefully it'll ignite ideas for others around Arizona to think of creative ways to use the land that they do have and how to help 
others create and attain the housing that we so desperately need. Let's dig into that report a little bit. Let's break it up into sections. We're not going to go through them all, but let's dig through a little bit. The first section talks about something called ADUs, which are accessory dwelling units. Darlene, you can tell us what that is. All right. Well, accessory dwelling units, they're freestanding units that most likely are located in your backyard. They're known as like in-law suites, casitas, cottages, granny flats. They're known by a lot of different names, and they usually have a separate water line, electrical line, utility hookups, and they can be used as on-site rentals. And uh, they can create income for the homeowner of the house. And in fact, they have seen those who have built ADU units in their backyards that their appraised value of their property has gone up like 35%. We have a couple examples. One of the examples is with Habitat for Humanity in Tucson. And they actually have created a workshop. They call it Chuck. It's for Connie Hillman Urban Construction Knowledge Center. And it's in collaboration with Pima Community College. So it's actually a work training program to build these modules. And I think it's really key that it's in Tucson because Tucson has passed an ordinance back in January of 2022, to allow for ADUs. And they had some of the strict requirements that Phoenix still has, but hopefully Phoenix and their housing plan is going to change some of the ordinance and requirements around ADUs. But that's one of the things that actually Tucson did change the code And they're allowing for one ADU on a residential lot. ADU have to be a maximum size of 10% of the lot. They they have some height restrictions. They're requiring a cool roof. But they also have what they say they want one parking space per ADU. But they'll say if it's on a bike path or close to transit, that they'll waiver that requirement. And I know that in Los Angeles, They did a similar thing and the community created like a thousand ADUs and actually it decreased the homeless population by a percentage. And so I think this is a very doable process to go through with the ADUs. I think it will increase the rental units and provide more affordable housing. And when we talk about the seniors really being pushed out of housing, What a great way to approach that population with these ADU that can be built. And there's quite a few different modules that are highlighted in the report that can be ADUs and fit these requirements that down in Tucson. But I think that Habitat, what they've come up with their workshop, I think that Tucson and I believe Flagstaff has also come up with some changes in their ADU requirements. And I believe that Phoenix is following right behind them and looking at allowing for more ADUs. As I was driving down Southern the other day and 7th Street, I saw one of UMOM's projects that I saw in the report. So why don't you talk to us about co-location, Darlene? What is co-location? Well, co-location is, in fact, there was a white paper that was produced in Montgomery County 
that has some great examples of co-location with city services, such as fire departments, police departments, libraries, perhaps putting a senior affordable housing project above a library. In fact, they actually did a project in Montgomery County above a fire station. They built 40 affordable units and 20 workforce units. And it's been very successful. And they have a lot of shared expenses. And that's the other part to co-location is that service part that Suzanne talked about earlier, that it's just not the housing, that the services and support services make such a difference to the residents and the stability for them to maintain their housing. So South 7th Village is actually four acres. It was an infill project. It had been an empty lot for a number of years. And so I built a LIHTC low-income tax credit project, 91 units for seniors and for 55 and over. It has an emphasis with working with veterans. It's 40 to 60% of the area median income which is around twenty-five dollars to $38,000 a year. And I can tell you when they opened up South 7th Village, within a week they had 400 applicants for those 91 units. But what's really cool is it's close to the South Central Light Rail in Phoenix. We, it's very close to the senior, South Mountain Senior Center. It's close to Ocotillo Library Services. It's right across the street from the Cozier Village which has special services for veterans experiencing trauma. There's a collaboration with the Croc Salvation Army and also Fresh Express Mobile Unit, which is a bus that goes around to food deserts and has a fresh produce. And so with this project, it's really a collaboration with a lot of city and community resources that are within a half a mile of the project. And the other thing that's unique about the project is one of the things that it does is they create a rental subsidy at each of their affordable housing units. So some of the development fee goes back into rental subsidies. So if someone is shy $50, $100, $200 a month, we create a contract with them that we renew on a yearly basis to help offset their rent. This is why we won't let you retire. Right. Because yes. <laughs> you can hear the passion when you're talking about these projects. I get really <laughs> that, that it's me because they make such a world of difference to so many individuals and they change so many lives. Let's switch it over to Gabe. I remember when I first walked into your office, there was this piece of what I thought was foam. And I thought, what the heck is that? And then you told me it was part of the first 3D built house in Arizona. It was something that I thought, that's unique. You could 3D print a house. What other kinds of creative building technologies are there? What should the listeners be aware of? What else is being instituted across the state and across the country? Yeah, I think that partnership between Habitat for Humanity Central Arizona and the city of Tempe was a great example of an innovative experimental type of process that they were going through that Habitat knowing well, the intent of city of Tempe to think out of the box to create new housing, partnered with them to get that experimental permit to make that type of housing. So like you had mentioned, that foam looking piece is a proprietary blend of cement 
polymer and a couple of other materials that has met the structural integrity minimum standards for city ordinances that have passed that. So there's several innovative practices that are going on throughout the entire state. And that's really what we wanted to do is categorize these to show the amazing stuff that's already going on, the cool stuff that's going on. As we built this report, some of the more innovative things that came out. I know one that's been around for a little while is HercuWall by a company called HercuTech. And they're pre-manufactured insulated walls that could be put up in different types of buildings. And they have a couple of different multifamily structures that they've been able to complete here in in Arizona over the last several years. But innovative things like that, it's insulated pre-assembled wall structures as the material. But then you have full systems. So you had mentioned boxables. Boxables is a Uh, a housing system that could be assembled in a multitude of configurations on site or created in a warehouse and erected on site in a multitude of configurations to meet the need of any community. So it could be as small as one bedroom, 300 square feet or stories. So there's several examples of that. Zenny Homes has a very similar product of manufactured housing that's created in the factory and built on site. And there's several cities that are looking at this as a new way to, to develop housing that's outside of the traditional models that increases efficiency and cost effectiveness to address the affordability factor. So ultimately, it goes back to affordability and allowing cities and towns to develop housing standards that can reduce costs and make them more affordable. I know one of the most recent examples, and it's a pretty popular trend, is the container homes. That's something else that we found thing in how different companies are looking to modify containers to make them livable and self-sustaining and transferable as, as livable units, not only for long-term use, but also as a solution for either rapid rehousing and homelessness. We've seen certain different uh, partners look at containers as part of that solution. So we found some really innovative, really uh, new ideas and stuff that's already going on here in Arizona. Suzanne, there's all kinds of other things within this report. Out of the other ones that are listed, creative land uses, mixed-use communities, faith-based community development corporations, smaller slash tiny homes, supports for landlords, and and tribal housing, what are the ones that stand out for you? I think some of the fights that have gone on in the legislature and the frustration with builders that are trying to cite your regular standard multi-family standalone, like a four-story apartment complex next to a single-family neighborhood is old-school thinking. We need to stop that, and we need to get beyond that and get more creative. And really, in looking at these promising practices, there is creativity going on. And you, the using, as Darlene said, you know, what if every city said, Every time we build or upgrade a library or a community center or a fire station, we're going to put workforce housing and partner with it. So the issue of not in my backyard becomes a very different thing. What if there was a public housing or some kind of workforce related housing that there was always an urgent care underneath an urgent care partnered with a daycare center? So how do we get out of this really old school mindset, particularly in Arizona, which has been so suburban for much of our growth, that things can only be in one place? And what we want to do is break open the notion back east, there's lots of co-location going on and much less consternation when there is 
multi-story workforce housing developed. And we're seeing that in the malls that are being redone in Arizona. You see that in Park Central and what's going on, the proposal in Paradise Valley and at Metro Center. So we're finally kind of catching up with the way the rest of the world works. And even in rural Arizona, we've had such a housing shortage. People that are in the service industry in Sedona can't live there because there's so many short-term rentals and so few houses or just living spaces. So what we were trying to say is we're not promoting any one type. We're saying break open the box and look at these types and cities as well as the legislature should be looking at how do we create incentives to get creative and how do we co-locate services that provide wraparound care for seniors and again, vulnerable people to keep them as healthy and thriving as possible. So that's the message I think more than anything we wanna communicate. There are a lot of examples in here and in the report we give the names of the people who are doing it and what their website is. And then on our website, on the Vitalist website, we'll have actual copies of model ordinances. So there is nothing stopping and we're partnering with Maricopa Association of Governments and the Arizona Community Foundation to say, how do we provide technical assistance to cities and towns that are interested in doing this? What if the five or six West Valley cities said, we're going to band together and we're going to create a model ADU ordinance that is similar for all five or six cities. And we're going to work with our city councils to get that going. Just think of the amount and the acceleration of additional housing in the West Valley. So that's what we're hoping this report generates is get out of the box, get out of this either or thinking of aided land use, if you will, when a multidisciplinary approach with services and housing really is the most effective way to move forward. Let's switch it up into a little bit more of a policy aspect of it. You just mentioned a little bit, Suzanne, that if cities in, for example, the West Valley can band together and change city ordinances to make it easier for people to create ADUs. What are other opportunities? What are the policy changes that are necessary and hopefully down the pipeline are coming so that these practices are easier to implement? Well, I can say one of the things that isn't as helpful, part of the challenge when there's frustration on a situation and private groups go to the legislature for solutions is the legislature is limited in what it can do. And what it tends to think about doing is either mandating cities to do something or forbidding cities to do something. It's that either or. And what we're lobbying for from a broader standpoint is step out of that mindset and how do you create incentives to create these alternative scenarios. So that's really in our minds, what the legislature should be doing is, and cities is focused on these mixed land use opportunities, leveraging city spaces where possible. So cities don't need, don't need legislation to do much of that. 
So the legislature should instead be helping to increase the amount of money to the Arizona Housing Trust Fund to allow the, and then step back and allow these innovations to occur. We've seen so much success. Darlene mentioned the low-income housing tax credit program. That has been a great public-private partnership. At one point, there was only $2 million a year going into the fund. Last year, there was a one-time allocation of $60 million. And this year, people are asking for $200 million. And that's the level of money we need and funding we need. But promoting these public-private partnerships is really a creative way to go. It's a very conservative approach because it is a public-private partnership. We also saw this last election year, the city of Flagstaff ran a bond measure that allocated, I think it was $20 million of general obligation bonds to create additional rental and homeownership opportunities. Mm -hmm. And I know other cities are looking at that saying, okay, how do we think about that as well? And the city of Phoenix in their upcoming bond election will also have money allocated for attainable housing. So there are some creative tools to take advantage of, and there's some good examples of models on how they were developed. I think to me, that's the road forward. So a great example of mixed use is here locally, here in Phoenix, the city of Phoenix in partnership with a couple of developers in the Edison Eastlake community was selected for a national grant called the Choice Neighborhoods Grant, which was $30 million. The city of Phoenix set funding with other partners to develop, I believe, a total of $100 plus million to redevelop a housing community in the Edison Eastlake area. So that has become a multi-use community. So it is developed for not only renters, low to moderate income renters, but there's an ad home ownership component to it as well. Plus there's community space and there's a plan for, I believe, retail around there as well. So we're talking about incorporating by design public housing facility that incorporates ownership, rental, public community space. And then amenities around that in the same area to bring all the resources needed for that. And there's even conversation about medical centers being located in proximity to it to really develop this mixed use type of development. And there's a couple of examples of that throughout Arizona. I think another great one is use the city of Tempe as an example of, again, in a partnership for a development cul-de-sac. So cul-de-sac is a great mixed-use example of housing with zero parking for the residents because it's on the light rail and it's intentional in that to make sure that the light rail is being used as that transportation, but it also has community space, open space, retail space, a local grocer and restaurant all on site. So we have a community that's designed around transit-oriented development that brings those amenities of grocery and entertainment and public space all in one location. So there's, uh, again, several good examples of mixed-use developments that are already going on. So we've heard different examples of ways people can co-locate of mixed-use communities, of community land trusts, of supports for landlords, all of these different practices that are creating ways for the community to really respond to the housing shortage. But I think we can try to end this on a higher note and think, what are some of the opportunities you all see with these promising practices that maybe we didn't go into? What is there that is still within this space that we may have left off? We didn't talk much about the faith-based communities and some of the developments that they have. 
And I've been contacted recently in the last month by five different churches that are interested in having affordable housing built on their property. And Tanner Development is highlighted in the report. They're going to be using tiny homes for 35 units for permanent rentals for veterans. But there's a lot of different examples in the community. But I think that's another area, given that there's a shortage of land, that looking at the faith-based community is understanding that and saying, hey, we've got this parking lot that we hardly ever use. Or we've have, we have these buildings on our campus and we're not using those anymore. And it, what's the opportunity for us to turn those in, this into affordable housing? And so I think that there's some great opportunity there with the faith-based community and that partnership. We talked about public and private partnership. And I think that the faith-based community is a great opportunity And I also think the initiative that we have going on with the school districts, I mean, that's really caught on statewide. We have a lot of districts in urban and rural areas that are looking at their land and looking at what opportunity there might be to build not only workforce housing, but affordable housing for the community. I think something else to be optimistic about is the report in general. And I can't say it's something that we haven't touched on, but I think the report in general shows the importance of housing and how different communities, whether they're urban or rural, are taking housing on and willing to have the conversation, whether we're talking about passing legislation or local propositions like in Flagstaff or local ordinances like in Tucson for ADUs. But this report provides opportunity and showcases the different efforts that cities are going through right now to address housing because it's such a big concern across the entire state, like I said, both urban and rural. So I'm optimistic about the report in general and showing these successes throughout the state and us being able to highlight them for other municipalities and other policymakers to see that it is possible to address housing in a variety of ways. I mean, that's what I'm excited about is to show that and the idea that this is going to be a living document, per se, to keep adding on for innovative examples, not only of building practices, but materials and ordinances that are passed so that it could be used as a casework of good examples. So I'm optimistic about that. And we've we've gotten some great responses about this report. And I would say, finally, that it shows that there's creativity. And so it gives ideas to elected officials and even citizens and developers that you don't have to do it the way you've always done it. It's time to really break out of that single family, multifamily dilemma and say, we don't have to do it that way. We can be creative. We can utilize land in different ways. We've been fortunate for a long time in Arizona not to worry about land, even though something like 19% of our land is only private. There is government or forest. and But of that 19%, we haven't really had to worry about it. But now growth and water and climate change have all caught up with us. And we just need to think about it differently. And I think the goal of this report is to give those ideas legs and encourage people and help communities and local officials look at it differently and take care of those areas where there are real needs and accelerate workforce housing. Thank you, Suzanne, Darlene, Gabe. Thank you for joining us on the Vitalist Spark podcast. 
thank you for all the work you're doing to improve housing and the housing stock for the state of Arizona. And for all of you listeners, if you haven't seen it, this should come out after the March 7th webinar with the Maricopa Association of Governments. But as soon as we get that recording, we will have it up on our YouTube channel and share it across social media. So you can see this in various formats and have some different examples of the ways that promising practices are improving the state. One last thing. If you enjoyed today's podcast episode, be sure to check out vitalisthealth.org slash housing. There you'll be able to see the publication we mentioned. You'll be able to see the webinar we did recently with the Maricopa Association of Governments. And you'll be able to see different examples of these housing best practices that are happening across the state. So check it out. Remember, you can always sign up for our Vitalist Spark News and be kept up to date with any community health issues across Arizona. Again, we thank you for your support, your listenership, and don't forget if there's anything in here that you have more questions about, we're always an email away. So just email us at info at vitalisthealth.org. Thank you all for joining us. And until next time, we'll see you here on the Vitalist Park Podcast.